0: Please look with me in your Bibles this morning as we return to the Gospel of John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14, and we'll not move very far today. We're going to look at verse 15. We find ourselves still on the eve of our Lord's betrayal, arrest, and His eventual crucifixion on the cross. We have had the pleasure and the privilege of listening to Christ. As He is preparing these men who have been with Him for three years. And as He is preparing them, He is preparing us for what He is saying to them. Certainly in this immediate context, I would be still more than they could possibly comprehend at the moment. Yet these promises, these instructions, these commands, these callings that are being placed upon our lives are dile- directly relating to us today. There are some fantastic, some incredible promises that Christ makes of these men who follow Him and what shall befall them in His absence. We have heard such things that have been spoken about greater works as we see in verse 12 when He said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also in greater works than these He will do because I go to My Father. We read that verse and we had to consider, examine what is a greater work than that which Christ has done. We had to disseminate that to cast aside the signs and the wonders, the entrappings that is used of the world and the worldly religious. We got down to the true effect of the gospel itself, the salvation of men's and women's souls. We looked at verse 13, and we heard the promise, And whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And thus we again needed to uh, examine more closely what that promise means. What are the implications of asking for something in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And ask for something that we are certain in our intent that is to glorify God the Father. Thus, we recognize the conditions upon those requests that we're not only asking in the name of Christ, we are asking of that which Christ would ask of Himself. And then we look to the verse that we examined this morning, this, this third great promise here, That is tied to it in verse 14. He told us, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But then he follows by saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if we tie these things together specifically let's look at the prayer where it says and whatsoever you ask in my name that I will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask anything in my name I will do it if you love me keep my commandments thus it's no surprise this morning that we're talking about what it means to keep the commandments of Christ we're talking about obedience but but bear in mind that the previous promise with regard to prayer had the same commandment attached to it, the same imperative attached to it, such that everything that we have in our lives as Christians is absolutely tied to the act, to the compelling cause of obedience to God's commands. In fact, there are two words that are prevalent throughout Scripture with regard to the life of a believer, a follower of God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is submission and obedience. Submission and obedience. There is no obedience unless there is first submission. The idea of surrendering to God the Father and His authority over your life in gratitude, knowing that you have no life if not for the Father. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23... verse 22 John writes in his epistle very similar he says and whatever we ask we receive from him all right now that sounds just like what we read in John 14 asking in his name right but it goes a little bit further and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight what we have here in verse 15 should not be a news flash. It cannot be separated from the previous promise because it is an absolute continuation of the promise. So now Jesus is looking at these wide eyed disciples. He's began in John chapter 14 by telling them, by making certainly understand that he must go away. And he tells them, But I am preparing a place for you, and I will come and get you so that you will be with me also. To which uh, the committee of men, like any committee, is going to want to know the answer about how. Are sure they'd love to know when? To which Jesus gave an absolute incredible response. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. So, as he told those men, what you need to know is me. And as he begins to build to these promises and to these incredible thoughts of what is to happen in the Lord's departure. And we haven't even gotten all the way through them yet. We have this statement in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. I want to begin here by what is unfortunate uh, as as the not reflected or translated to you. uh, In this new King James Version translation or in the King James either. What they have here when they write this verse is they make it as if it is a command. If you love me, keep my commandments. But in fact, the structure in the Greek language does not propose this. It does not speak it as a command. It speaks it as a future act. It would better read if we said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is not a command, if you love me, then go and do it. No, it is implied that if you love the Lord, you will keep His commandments. Therefore, the promise made to the disciples is not if you do this, it's when you do this. Because these men have been chosen by God, indeed they love Him. Why? Because He loved them first. We understand the principle. He has called them, He has drawn them to them. And so He has told them, He gives them the future tense, saying, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And thus, we come to the very principle in which we need to operate by. And that is, if we know the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we espouse to love in return, we will strive to obey Him. How do we obey the Lord? By obeying His commandments. Jesus was very specific about this. You wouldn't think this is a problem, but in fact, it is one of the greatest problems that we have today among those who claim to be believers, claim to be followers of Christ. There is a battle here with regard to the importance of obedience of God's Word. One of the 50-cent words that I call them that comes out of this is a term called antinomianism. How do you like that one? I didn't bother to count the letters. Antinomianism. What does that really mean? If you're not familiar with this theological term, the base root of it is to suggest that there is this problematic view that believes that the commandments of God's Word have no place in Christianity. The way this is accomplished in no small form are those who have established through the years an attempt to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. Which is a real big problem because it's the same God. There is no shift change between the old and the new, though we seem to want to separate somehow and imagine that the, the God of the Old Testament is this, this enemy of grace because it was a way that was bound in the law, a law that could never be achieved, but the God of the New Testament, oh no, no, that's about love, mercy, and grace. We don't, we don't adhere to the law any longer. Instead, we have adopted this form that suggests that the only God today, though the teachings of Jesus are compelling, they are admirable, yes, The Apostle Paul says some things that we can make some use of, but what guides us truly is love, love, love. And we have determined that whatever we're doing, and we're doing it so in love, then it's okay. Now what happens is, is this produces a result, a result of disobedience to God's Word, for no longer do we accept an objective truth. What God says is wrong when, when the, the Word says, Thou shalt not, we presume the idea, but Jesus would change that if He were here with us today. You don't believe me? You must not be watching the view. They say it all the time. They propose, we may know what He said then, but He wouldn't say that now. In my, in my loving heart, I presume that God would feel just like I do because I'm doing it out of a measure of love God has to find your love for Him and His love for you to be bound up in the desire to obey Him. And to obey Him is to obey His commands. What happens out because of this is, is that it produces a result if left to its end conclusion. That is any disobedience. Any disobedience is acceptable if done motivated by love. Oh, and we make a determination that it doesn't hurt anyone. This is all an incredible lie. It is all an incredible lie. This love that you're committing is not a love of God. And it's certainly not God's love in you. This idea that it doesn't hurt anyone. Oh my goodness. Well, let's start with it hurting your Creator. For it is an absolute affront to Him. To any believer who says that they have confessed their sin, believed and trusted in Christ, and yet believe that they have the free agency to take God's Word, the law as it were, and we'll discuss that in just a moment, and ignore it because we no longer find it relevant, and still it's okay because, in fact, there's a common phrase, God knows my heart. Let me tell you something. You think that's a compliment? That ought to scare you to death. All I get to hear is your tongue. All I get to do is evaluate the expression on your face. All I get to do is examine what you've done and what you haven't done. God knows what's going on in your heart and your mind. The motivation before you did or didn't do it. The justification that you make of it. Now I want you to know this is compelling. You may think it's awful. You may think it's repulsive. And I'm glad you do. But in the right circumstance, this is the stuff that draws multitudes. This is the stuff that compels the masses. You do not need to feel any judgment here. No judgment. My friend, you and I are to be evaluated by God the Father through His Son and the Holy Spirit on every single day. You say, but I'm saved, I'm justified by grace. Yeah, we're going to get to that. But the idea of no obedience, the idea of an objective truth by which we obey, and there will be an argument made that says, well, pastor, God's word doesn't speak to everything. I once was counseling with a man, and and he had proposed his own rule and his own law that certain people were not keeping, and he was extremely upset about it to which we had to have a a conference here about the idea of what the Word of God speaks to and what it does not. And he plainly says, well, listen, pastor, the Bible doesn't speak to everything. And I said, you know what? To a great degree, it actually does. It may not say thou shalt not turn left or thou shalt not turn right, but it tells you what ought to be in your heart and your mind before you make the turn. Thus, that should be the influence on the decision you make. Where does that influence come from? It comes from the direction of God's Word. We have seen uh, in the battle at the forefront of religion in previous years gone by, having been a Baptist and formerly in a Southern Baptist denomination, in the 70s there was a quote-unquote battle for the Bible. And it was based on the idea that the Scriptures were inerrant. They were God's inspired Word. Absolutely. Good stuff. The problem was, in the years after that, it appears that they would still claim it's inerrant, but they refused to acknowledge or live as if it was sufficient. We began to amend it. We we began to omit certain things with regard to it. And we find ourselves on a slippery slope today where the culture outside tends to be the more dictating force about what we will define as the loving approach. To Christianity. They say, Pastor, are you talking about salvation by works? Absolutely not. Salvation is indeed by grace. Let's make ourselves clear for a moment. Salvation is by grace. It is not by works. It is not by law. There is no living the life of a believer that is thought to be accomplished by imposing a list of rules, even if they are indeed biblical rules. Love, not law must be the bedrock of our Christian life and its action. Jesus said it Himself, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Thus, He makes it clear of what we understand here, is that the one who truly loves the Lord will make every effort to be obedient to His commands. One is the natural result of the other. And by the way, that that being a result of anything, is beyond the scope of any man's efforts. It is only an act of God that can bring this about. By this we know. By this we know. Obeying his commandments is how we know that we love the Father. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. Now this, now by this. We know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. In verse 5 of that same chapter of John's epistle. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. Now, what he describes is a condition in our hearts and our lives that says, now by this we know Him meaning God the Father through His Son, if we keep His commandments. And then it goes in the other end and says, but whosoever, whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. Alright, so as we see the, the yin and the yang here of this verse in 1 John chapter 2, it becomes very clear that it is the love of God that inhabits us, that transforms us. So that we are desiring and making every effort to keep his commandments. Such that when we do keep his word. When there is any evidence of anybody who sees that we are keeping his word. God especially. We know that we are able to do it. Because the love of God is perfected. Meaning it is complete. In him. By this we know that we are in him. Now. It's important to know when we go back and look at this verse. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How on earth does that happen and why is it such a miracle? Because some of us imagine that we can keep His commandments now. Years ago, I once spoke to a very, very uh, confused young man who thought uh, that one could lose their salvation because it was so tied to the human effort he suggested that he had to be without sin in order to keep his relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That he could live without sin. And I said, live without sin? What is the basis of this? How do you live perfection? What, what laws can you fulfill enough to hold on to salvation? He said, well, well the Ten Commandments. <laughs> really? My... My heart went out to him because he was absolutely deluding himself. This was a fallacy, this idea that he could live and fulfill the Ten Commandments. And thus we are come to blows here with the idea of a a scriptural passage and a standard that is beyond us. And it is beyond us. It takes an absolute, supernatural, transformative work in our hearts and our lives for you and I to fulfill the commandments of God, to follow in obedience to His Scripture. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that without God intervening into our hearts and our lives, it is in our nature to do anything but obey God. We're looking at a a means and a way to rebel against God. It is true to our nature. When did we see this in the very beginning? One of the most glaring examples of this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God places them in the most optimistic place to live on earth, man. Think of this. The abundance of food, the animals that are all your pets practically. You have dominion over them. You're just tending. You're just living. You're just dwelling. All is there. All you need to do is obey obey the father who put you there they did not they did not you say well the serpent talked them into it It didn't take much he lied to them he absolutely lied to them and had they been listening to god the father and i'm thinking they did they knew What they were doing was wrong, and it was rebellion. And from that day forward, the sinful nature of man has been doing the same thing. This is the reason why we speak of the wickedness and depravity of man outside of God. Thus, John's epistle, when it says what it means to be in him. In that same epistle, John writes, we love him because he first loved us. Meaning any measure of love we have is because God has equipped us so that we might love him in any form or fashion, in a way that pleases Him. So if we understand this, it is not within our nature to want to to obey God, and therefore when we desire it, we know for a fact it is God doing a divine work in us, or otherwise we wouldn't. Do you understand that? If you have a desire to obey God, it is because God has put it there. You want assurance of your salvation? There's a good place to start. And you say, wait a minute, pastor, there's a lot of people that are obeying God. My friend, now is where we get into that part where God knows your heart. There are many people who do charitable things, noble things, generous things. They may do things that they may even espouse to be doing it in God's Word. And you and I can be fooled. But God knows. But God knows that sometimes even a surface obedience is for an ulterior motive that is selfish in turn. If it's selfish in turn, then it's sinful in turn. If it's sinful in turn, then and it's in your intention, then it betrays the idea that you love the Lord. So the implication of Christ's statement to these disciples is that they are to obey God's commands. Now, thus comes the other truthful objection to this. Can we, without sin, without error, obey the commands of God. The Bible says if we love Him, we'll keep His commands. Can we do it? We cannot do it without sin. We cannot do it without failure. We cannot do it without the temptation to do it selfishly. We cannot do it on a daily basis to the sinful perfection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, thus the reason why He is our Savior. He is the one and the only who has lived such a sinful, sinless life of perfection in complete obedience to God's word. We follow after him. Our desire is to do the same, recognizing that in this, in this existence, in this flesh, in this mind, we will strive and we will fall short, but we will continue to strive. Does God anticipate this? He absolutely does. He knows it without a shadow of a fact because he sees all and he sees it all at the same time. And so what has he done? In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, the first thing he tells us is reality. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So he looks at brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you imagine that you're keeping the Ten Commandments and therefore keeping your salvation, he said you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving. And by the way, when he says the truth is not in you, that is tantamount to suggesting you don't know God at all. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 gives us the opposite end of this equation. Where Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. So lest I leave you on the floor bleeding, with the pastor saying, I can't do it, may I remind you of that wonderful little children's song. You know which one I'm going to sing? He's still working on me. Now, a saving work has been done. The Holy Spirit has been put within us. It is there to direct us, to help us understand His His Word, to help us pray, because in this imperfect existence, there's a lot of work to be done. But His productive work, God is doing it, and what is the end? That by the time that we stand before God the Father, having been fully transformed in what He has promised, We are indeed that servant who is not simply capable but is keeping his commands, obeying his word. For now we keep stumbling over ourselves and we keep getting back up. We keep reading his word and we keep seeking to apply God's word. We want to do that which pleases him and we are betrayed at times by our lustful thoughts. We are betrayed at times by our angry thoughts. We are betrayed at times by our sinful, ambitious thoughts. And therefore, in 1 John chapter 1, not only does it remind us of the reality of sin, but it assures us that we are to be faithful to confess that sin and know the forgiveness of God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness not to bring us salvation, but to bring us back in the fellowship of our Heavenly Father and our intention of His righteousness. Obeying. We will love. We will love and therefore we will obey. We will love and know that we love. But what commands? What commands indeed? If we look back to John chapter 13. We are reminded. It is on the heels of Christ after he has washed the feet of his disciples and the feet of his betrayer. And he looks at them and he concludes in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The implications of that love were truly on display as he washed their feet. In John chapter 13 and verse 13, Jesus would tell them in the midst of this, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What did he mean by that? Did he mean that, that you needed to wash my feet? And I needed to wash yours? Is that literally the only lesson we take from this? Certainly the washing of feet as it was intended this night with Jesus and his disciples can be a beautiful, ministering, serving thing. But it is can only be symbolic of your desire to serve them far more than that. Indeed, it was supposed to be emblematic of the fact that no matter what responsibility God has given us, no matter what title, no matter what place, that we have in His ministry, in His kingdom, in His church, Jesus gives us the ultimate example if your Lord and your teacher has dropped to His knees and taken a towel and He has washed your feet because nobody else in the room had the thought then it's a jarring conclusion that the Christian life in part of obeying his commandments is about putting themselves at the disposal of the Lord himself to serve, to serve. When we read the passage in Matthew chapter 22, when he responded to the great commandment question, he said, this is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Excuse me, let me back up to verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus did, if one goes back and looks in the book of Exodus at the Ten Commandments, you'll note that what Jesus did was tell you the summary of the first half of the commandments and the second half of the commandments. The first half will describe to you what you do... To express what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your body, with all that you have. The second half of those commandments speaks of because of that love, how you will love everybody else in your life. Thus, you'll be loving your neighbor as you love yourself. When we think of God's commands, we must recognize this. In John chapter 14, when we look at what Christ said to us with regard to the service to others and what we are to do in verse chapter 13, I should say. And then in chapter 15, he speaks to the idea of not just the idea of our service to others, but that our service would be a sacrifice to others. In John chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we've seen that standard already presented to us in John chapter 13 and verse 34, but I want you to notice the wording. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the standard of our love toward one another should be that of the love of Christ for us. Should we go back and replay John chapter 13 again? Where when nobody else is thinking... The servant of Christ is thinking about what it means to wash somebody's feet or to take care of something in the room. Always looking to serve. Always looking to honor. And will do so at the expense of their time, their convenience, and if need be, their dignity. Now that becomes a tall order for us, doesn't it? In the culture in which we exist, the idea of sacrifice... I sometimes sense that we have this idea that even our sacrifices are to come at our convenience. Obedience will show. Obedience to God's word will show in the keeping of his commandments as we do so, even as we are ready and willing thinking, anticipating how we may serve others. How we may sacrifice in that service to others. Always understanding the opportunity of obedience that brings us to a place where we are sharing with others. Sharing with others. We live. We live in a culture and a society today in this country that may do generous things. In fact, we pat ourselves on the back often by being, about being generous people and giving to charities and gobs of money and things of that nature. And yet, ironically... We have to be one of the most self-serving, narcissistic societies and cultures that one might find. Do you know what narcissistic means? It means constantly consumed with yourself. With not just indulging oneself, but promoting oneself. The idea that everything that happens, you know, just look at one of our politicians, you'll figure it out. When we think of these terms, how can this be present within God's people? What is it that you and I have to brag about? Paul said, I can boast of nothing except Christ, crucified, risen again. I I cannot perform nor declare anything more important than the gospel. I cannot teach nor preach anything more valuable than the whole counsel of God's word. Reluctantly, Paul would have to defend himself, but only when it became necessary. He didn't use it as a calling card. To share ourselves is to do so swallowing our pride, setting aside our dignity, and seeking God's glory. And you say, well, you're asking a lot. No, no. No, we are not. In Romans chapter 12... Paul describes it as a reasonable service to do all this. And you say it's an impossible task. Indeed. Now that one I agree with you. Can one of us sit here in this room and say, after what Christ has done for us, if we truly believe, if we have truly confessed our sin, trusted in him as, our, him as our Savior, can we possibly suggest that He's not worthy of this? That He doesn't deserve this? We have a phrase. That is common in our life. I don't deserve this. Yes you do. You deserve it and more. And nobody should know that more than a believer. Because a believer knows. That what they deserve is hell. A believer knows. That what they deserve. Is eternal separation from God. What we really deserve is a hopeless as well as helpless life but we know god's love mercy and grace and therefore we are inspired motivated and commanded to love one another as he has loved us to love him and how do we love him by obeying him Not only in sharing ourselves, but most importantly, by sharing the gospel. There is no greater message. There is no greater hope. Therefore, if there is anything that we do in service and in ministry and comfort and in grace and in help, we long for it as an open door to live and to share the gospel with anyone who would listen, to give a reason. For the faith that we possess, a faith that is a gift of God, a faith that strengthens us to do that which is unnatural to our sinful character and desire, that which is unnatural to the Gulf Stream of the culture and the society that surrounds us on its best day, but that which is supernatural because one must be in Christ. One must be in Him. To accomplish one inch of it. Do we really love Jesus? After all, isn't that what the text says? If you love me. The text says if you love me. You will keep my commandments. Will you keep them perfectly? No. But you will strive to keep them. You will work to honor and to glorify Him. You will see the Scriptures not simply as advice, but as an absolute truth. An objective truth, not subjective. There is no sections here that we can carve out because they're unsettling to us. There is no time periods that we can exorcise from God's Word and suggest that's not the same now. Now. There is a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation to which all scriptures point to Christ. There is a thread from Genesis to Revelation that continually remind us of God's grace and His salvation and to know that man would not be drawing a breath today if not for it. There is a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation that shows us the very love, mercy, and grace that redeems a man, that reminds us that consistently one thing remains the same. It starts with God. And it ends with God. He chooses us. He sets us aside and He guides us. We believe. We believe and in our greatest of days we still think it's our idea when we do believe. And then we find out looking in the rear view mirror spiritually this wasn't my idea at all. Do we really love Jesus? Jesus. Or if we love Jesus, we would be rejoicing in these promises and pursuing the conditions that are bound to them. What are the conditions? The conditions are you must be saved. If one is saved, it means one must have experienced the love of God that has opened our eyes and our hearts to see our sin, to see our sin and recognize that we are overwhelmed to be absolutely petrified over the idea that we will stand before God and we'll have to account and we'll either account in our own righteousness which will be worthless or we will be accountable in the righteousness of Christ. This is what draws us to a loving Savior. A loving Savior who's loved us and whom we desire to love. A love that is not one that simply says thank you Lord, I'll see you. When you come usher me into heaven. No. It is a love that says. Oh my Lord and Savior. Thank you. I believe trust. And will do all that I can to follow you from this day forth. If you love me. If you love me. You will. Stand with me. As Steve comes forward. Prepares us for our song of commitment this morning. As you stand with me, could we go to the Lord in prayer, please, at this time? Father, we thank You. We thank You so much for Your love, for Your mercy, for Your grace. For, Lord, it is that which opens our mind, our hearts to see this incredible truth. The truth of Your Word, the truth of Your promise. Lord, man is excited. He is drawn by this idea of of a compelling word to you in prayer and then what is asked for is received. This compelling promise to imagine of doing greater works. Lord, I pray this morning that for each and every one of us whom you have made yourself known to who truly know you, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. Have no such whims of grandeur. But Lord, are willing to begin and willing to be found in the end on our knees. Serving, sacrificing, presenting the gospel, desiring nothing more than to be pleasing in your eyes. Because we have known your love. Desiring nothing more than obeying your word, because we have known your love, your redemption, your justification, your righteousness applied to our lives where ours would utterly fail. Thank you, Lord. And I pray as you continue to work in the hearts of lives and homes. Lord, we trust and we rejoice in your saving word. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.